Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Tim Latimer, co-founder and CEO of Fervo Energy, a geothermal energy developer. Geothermal is a relatively small source of energy in the U.S., but it has the potential to grow substantially. I'll ask Tim to tell us how the technology works, where it's deployed in the U.S. and around the world, and how it might grow in the years ahead. We'll also talk about some of the environmental risks of geothermal, and along the way, make a bunch of bad puns about hot rocks. Stay with us. Okay, Tim Latimer from Fervo Energy, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Wonderful to be here. So Tim, today we're going to do a little bit of a 101 on uh, geothermal energy, and you're going to help guide us through learning about the technology uh, and a variety of other issues. But we like to start every episode by asking people about how they got interested in working on energy or environmental issues. So uh, what attracted you to working on energy? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and we can go go back a ways, I guess. Um, so first off, I'm from Texas, which like if you're from Texas, energy and the environment's <laughs> just a fact of of life. It's not something you really miss out on really anywhere in the state. But I think in particular for me, my hometown is Riesel, Texas, a really small town, around 1,000 people live there in central Texas. And it's actually the home of the last, most recently constructed coal-fired power plant in the entire US. So the Sandy Creek power plant, they started construction on it in the 2000s, put it online in 2013. And and it's the last major coal plant to be built um, because obviously a lot of market trends went in the opposite direction really why that plant was was being constructed but um, what that meant was that they started the planning and community engagement phase of that plant actually when i was in junior high and i remember the companies and community people coming in and having a big debate in my town about whether or not to build this coal plant and there were really interesting arguments on both sides i mean First off, the, the economic benefits and the tax benefits of constructing this massive facility in a thousand person town were tremendous. Um, but obviously coal and all the pollution and particulate matter and noise and everything that comes along with it um, was definitely something that raised a lot of eyebrows for our community. And so there was a huge back and forth demonstrations, city council meetings, you name it. And ultimately they voted to approve it. And all of the you know, positive economic benefits that were promised, um, I mean, mostly came true. I mean, they built a brand new high school, brand new, um, you know, upgraded the streets and roads, all this stuff with the new tax Mm -hmm. revenue, but all of the negative benefits were true too. I mean, you can still hear that coal plant from my parents' house 24 seven operating, even though they're a couple miles away. And it has definitely led to a change in the local pollution impacts. And so I watched that process the whole time I was growing up and I got left with a really big, um, I don't know, bad bad taste in my mouth about how I don't like these trade-offs. Like people shouldn't have to be forced in their communities to choose between something that's economically beneficial but destroys the environment or vice versa. And so I got interested from a very young age in trying to think about why can't we make the energy system better so we don't have to put people in these tough trade-offs. And so um, attracted me to energy in the first place and has led me to be really kind of laser focused on sustainability and delivering electricity and energy to folks without um, all those negative benefits. You know, just observing how that trade-off played out in my local community growing up has uh, really kind of colored how I see the energy sector and the world writ large um, throughout the rest of my career. Yeah. 
That's so fascinating. And when you mentioned taste in your mouth, it, it reminded me of, well, I went on a tour of a large coal-fired power plant here in Michigan. And when I was climbing up uh, near the boilers, I actually could taste uh, some of the, the, I think it was coal ash, but I, I suddenly tasted some kind of particulate matter in, in my mouth. And so it's, you know, figuratively and literally uh, a, a real issue. Yeah, it, it, cer- it certainly is. And, and I can tell you, it's it's something you can't ignore it when you're in town. I mean, it's it's visually dominates everything around us and then and then the sound and the noise and the smell i mean it's all there it's all there and 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 but it's not all bad right i mean it's 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 very true the schools and the roads and everything that all came as a direct result of that project but you know at at a real cost yeah for sure well, um, I'm sure, you know, we could, of course, talk about trade-offs <laughs> with uh, with energy all day, as we often do on this podcast, but we're going to focus in now on geothermal energy, which is your area of expertise. And to get us started, I thought it would be useful to ask if you could just help us understand how the technology works. So most of us, or at least many of us, have an intuitive sense of maybe how a coal-fired power plant works or how a wind turbine works or how a hydropower dam generates electricity. But at least for me, I don't have a good mental picture for how geothermal works. So can you give us a really basic introduction to the technology? Sure, sure. So the first thing that you got to think about with geothermal is that there are rocks around the earth that are hot. (laughs) And they can be hot because of volcanic activity. They can be hot because of rifts or boundaries or you, you name it. There's all kinds of reasons geologically why these rocks are hot. And everywhere on Earth, if, if you go deep enough, you, you end up finding really hot rocks. And, and that's that's kind of a leftover from um, the pressures and the systems that, that we have here, here on Earth. And in places that are particularly hot, um, geologically speaking, whether we're talking about Iceland or Kenya or Northern California, that heat is close enough to the surface that we can drill into it and access that heat and capture that energy directly. So typically geothermal um, identifies these resources that have a lot of heat um, close to the surface where it's cost effective to access it. You drill down wells into it and you end up having injection wells and production wells, injection wells that pump cold water down, production wells that return hot water and steam to the surface. And you pump through these hot reservoirs, return that steam at the surface, and then that steam at the surface is captured and put to productive uses, either powering turbines to generate electricity or powering greenhouses or district heating systems, you name it. But when we talk about deep geothermal energy, that's what we're talking about is is accessing these hot pockets in the earth and doing so in a way that we can capture that energy from uh, fluid up through production wells and make something useful out of it on the surface. Great. That's super helpful. Um, so you mentioned Northern California as being one place where we have you know good geothermal resources close to the surface. Can you give us a sense of how much geothermal energy uh, is produced today in the U.S. and kind of where it's distributed and maybe how it's changed over the last five or ten years? Sure. I think that um, the state of play for, for geothermal in the U.S. is that we get about one half of one percent of our you uh, of the U.S.'s total electricity supply from geothermal. And that's pretty concentrated in certain places. That number, by the way, translates to about three gigawatts of installed geothermal capacity. And what you see is most of that is located in the western United States, um, California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, a few other states in the west. And then there's also producing plants in Alaska and Hawaii. And traditionally, those are the regions that have, um, well, where where the rocks are hot. I mean, I, I joke sometimes, geologically, California is in some ways trying to leave the rest of the United States. And what that does is it stretches out 
um, rifts in that area and then also creates this whole system that we call the basin and range system that encompasses many Western states where the crust is actually thinner and you have these heat resources that can come up closer to the surface as a result. And that kind of geologic movement is what causes the resources to generally be found in the Western US. Um, now there's some promising opportunities for development, both in electricity and in power generation and in direct use in the Eastern US, but to date that's been a little bit farther behind. So what you see is markets like California um, gets about 6% of its electricity from geothermal. Markets like Nevada, it's closer to 12%. Um, those are probably the two states where it's the most meaningful percentage, although there's a good installed capacity in many other locations as well. But that's really the state of where we are today. And what's interesting, you know, if you think about geothermal in the last five to 10 years in the United States, we have certainly experienced growth in our sector, although growth is a relative term. And, and what you often see when you plot it against wind and solar is those renewables have had such a tremendous trajectory that the growth of geothermal doesn't doesn't show up as well. But it has been growing. And interestingly, it's been growing in large part because of um, new technology developments that have allowed us to access lower temperature resources through what's called binary cycle power plants, which are um, a newer development technologically in the space for geothermal, but account for most of the growth in the last um, 10 to 20 years of geothermal power in the United States. That's really interesting. So um, just to make sure I, I understand what you said, the um, the technological developments have enabled basically the technology to be more economical, even with lower temperature rocks. So the rocks aren't quite as hot as they are maybe in California. Correct. Correct. So if you think about, you know, where the first geothermal resources were developed, I mean, developing geothermal resources is no different than any other natural resources, whether you're talking about oil or wind or anywhere else. You, you The first place you develop is the place with the best resource. Right. And globally, it, what that meant for the geothermal industry is the first plants were um, the first plant really was developed around 100 years ago in Italy. But the first large scale geothermal power plants were all developed, let's call it in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Northern California, New Zealand, Italy, Iceland, places that geologically have these phenomenal resources. So the first large scale plant, and today still the largest geothermal facility in the world, is a plant called the Geysers plant in Northern California. Um, it produces roughly one gigawatt of electricity uh, and has been producing consistently for uh, 40 or 50 years now. And that was what was tapped first. And what you see there is a phenomenally hot resource that's very close to the surface that um, has tons of energy that we can capture. And for many decades, that was really the the story of geothermal is if you had one of these beautiful resources that had a ton of heat and flow capacity right by the surface, you could develop it. But pushing out to other resources was more challenging. And now um, what's happened is a lot of innovation has occurred in the last couple of decades that have allowed us to um, drill deeper, more cost effectively, identify more resources, and then importantly, make use of uh, electricity generating um, capacity, even in reservoirs with lower temperature. And so that's what these binary cycle plants do, is they allow us to produce electricity even down in the regime of uh, 150 degrees C or 200 C or even down all the way to 70 C in certain situations, whereas those traditional geothermal resources where there's still a lot of development work to be done might be more like 250 or 300 or 350 degrees Celsius. Got it. Yeah. That's super interesting. So so when so you've described, you know, where a lot of the concentration of existing 
uh, resources are and existing power plants are in the U.S. Can you give us a sense of how viable the technology might be using these new technologies in other parts of the country where resources would be more modest? Yeah, I, there's there's a lot of opportunity for growth. So I started off this this discussion telling you that we've got about three gigawatts installed in the U.S. to date. Um, that is just a fraction of what could be uh, accessed realistically over the next um, several decades. So probably the best reference for this, um, for those interested in learning more, I'd point people to the GeoVision study that was produced by the Department of Energy that came out last year. And they identified kind of the set of technological policy, regulatory market barriers that, that we need to tackle to lay out their roadmap and their vision, which is to get to 16% of US electricity supply by mid-century. Um, wow. And so that'd be around 120 gigawatts, a huge uptick in what we have today. And it relies really on a lot of technologies that are already in existence or could be rapidly developed with the right policy support. Um, and, you know, fixing some of the regulatory barriers that have prevented geothermal development from scaling. But it, it, it has the capacity, you know, geothermal, you just think about this, the earth is big and the earth is really <laughs> hot. Uh, resource potential has never been the problem for geothermal. There's enough heat just in the first five kilometers of the uh, earth's surface that, that we could access today in the U.S. to power the entire electric grid, um, no, no doubt about it. Um, it's always been a question of can we do that technically and economically? And so um, that's what this report identifies. That's the prize that really the research community, private companies like mine are going after is not trying to add a little bit more resource, but let's get it up to something like 16 percent where it can have a really meaningful impact on decarbonizing the most difficult parts of the electric sector. You know, our nighttime electricity, our winter electricity, that reliable uh, nature where the 24 seven um, value of geothermal electricity production uh, really shines. So that's that's the potential that we're looking at. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I really didn't know that, it, that there was that much potential out there. It's fascinating. The, the, and, earth, the earth is big and the earth is hot. That's that's two things that 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 we don't we don't lack for at all is 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 the resource that's there. Um, there's there's a lot of it and there's a huge upside to be gained from uh, more more geothermal development. That's great. Is it is that on your business card? The earth is big. And the earth is <laughs> if I had if I, I if I was in your line of work, I might put that on my business card. Yeah, well, it's it's a useful point. I think I think one that that I hope people can 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 take to heart because um, there's just there's just enormous potential and and the earth being big and the earth being hot is probably two things that are are very important for any um, person setting out in their geothermal career to understand pretty well. Yeah, interesting. So one of the things you just mentioned is the potential twenty four seven nature of geothermal power and. In preparation for this episode, I looked up the levelized cost of electricity, which is a metric for evaluating the costs of uh, deploying certain types of uh, electricity technologies uh, from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And what you see is that geothermal, by the U.S. EIA's metric, is one of the cheapest sources of electricity that's available. Uh, it's cheaper, according to the EIA, than natural gas, cheaper than wind, even though those technologies are seeing widespread deployment. So when you look at that number, that levelized cost number, and see how low it is, intuitively one would think that, oh, we're going to see a lot more geothermal coming down the pipe, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the dichotomy between uh, a potentially low 
uh, levelized cost figure that the US EIA shows and why there isn't more geothermal that's under construction now? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I think maybe I'll start by talking a little bit about value and, and what geothermal's role on the grid can be and should be. Um, and then maybe I'll talk a little bit about some of the development barriers. Because um, that number by the EIA, uh, I, I wish that were true for all the resources we're looking at today. Because <laughs> if it was, then, then we'd have solved climate change. If you could have as much geothermal as you wanted at $38 uh, a megawatt hour LCOE, then, then you know, we can all go home. But, but the reality <laughs> is that there's, there's a little bit more nuance to that. And that number could be a little bit higher in different situations. So but first, just to talk about value. So what we are seeing in the geothermal marketplace right now is that uh, geothermal electricity is um, somewhat unique in the fact that it's a renewable resource, emission-free, uh, and produces 24-7 reliably and can be load-following and dispatchable. So that's a kind of set of attributes that not many um, electricity-generating um, resources can claim. And what that means is that as the grid changes and that we push to deeper and deeper levels of decarbonization, those attributes provide more and more value to the grid. So if you read different studies and grid modeling exercises, um, what people have shown very well and time and again is that with wind, solar, and batteries, just you know, mature deployable technologies that we could build rapidly today, we can get, you know, depending on what reports you read, 50, 60, 70, 80% of our electricity, sometimes even more, just from scaling those up today, and it's very cost-effective. And I think that's the direction we're going, and it's quite exciting. Now, what almost all of these reports universally agree on is getting the last 10, 20, 30% of the electricity generated in a carbon-free manner uh, is going to be extraordinarily difficult, and that we need something new to be there. Because uh, really, if you think about the projections on climate change and carbon emissions, we can't really just get 80% of the way there and be okay. I mean, we truly have to get to zero and then start even pulling carbon out of the system based off of most projections of, of what we want to do in terms of tackling climate change. And so it's really important we have something there to complement um, our wind, solar, and battery resources. Those we should be deploying as fast as possible, as quick as possible, get out there, get that low-hanging fruit there. But we've got to be working on something like geothermal, which could be the answer to the last and most difficult piece of that today. And so what you see, just for an example, taking a snapshot of the market in California right now, California's new SB100 law not only put in um, an electricity target that we're going to get 100% of California's electricity from carbon-free resources by 2045, they also put in a really strong intermediate target around 60% by 2030, which is only 10 years away. And we're around 33-ish mm -hmm. percent right now in California from renewable sources. So we've got to double that in the next 10 years, roughly double that. And we have to do it in a way where we start decarbonizing nighttime and uh, evening and winter electricity because solar has been so phenomenal that it's almost cleaned up a lot of the daytime supply. And so not only do we need to double that in California, but we need to do it in a way that lets us tackle this evening, night, um, uh, winter problems for carbon-free electricity generation. So you're seeing the market turn and a lot of CCAs, munis, um, uh, utilities, buyers of power in the Western US and states that have taken decarbonization seriously are now signing up geothermal contracts for the first time in nearly a decade because they're now starting to think, what's the cheapest way to decarbonize nighttime electricity? And geothermal, because it's a 24-7 reliable resource, really shines there. So that's that's the value piece of that. And that's what's driving a lot of the uptick in interest right now is, is um, 
what that does from a diversification and portfolio standpoint to add value to your electric system, um, we're at the time now when customers are demanding that. And so it's an exciting time to be in geothermal. Now that's that's the excitement part. Now the, now the challenging part is, like I said, I wish that EIA number were were true in my experience that we could deliver geothermal power that cheap. And, and that's a much lower number than what you see in like a Lazard analysis or the NREL annual technology baseline number where it might be closer to $80 or $90 or above. And I think part of this comes down to the fact that geothermal resources, there's a lot of variety inside of that, you know, depending on how deep the resource is, how hot the resource is, um, what kind of technology you're using at the surface, how close are you to transmission? I mean, all these things factor in a lot. And because we're so dependent on the geology, it's a little bit different than other resources where you generally kind of know what the costs are. What you find with geothermal is that these really high quality resources may be able to hit that top end number, but the rest of the supply, um, you know, may require a $60 price or a $70 price or an $80 price to deliver it because maybe it's farther away from transmission or maybe it's deeper um, or maybe it's uh, not quite as hot or there's other factors that drive into this. So can someone find a spot in the Western U.S. where you can deliver geothermal power at that price? Definitely. But can we find dozens of gigawatts at that price? You know, not with today's technology, not until we come down the learning curve a little bit, push down costs. So it's really a question of how much resource can we get where. And a lot of the geothermal resource in the Western US with the right policy support could probably be developed in this 60 to $70 range, um, which is a price that's now quite compelling for a lot of customers thinking about decarbonizing their system because that's by far the cheapest way that you're gonna get reliable you know, nighttime, evening, winter electricity decarbonized. And so that's quite interesting, but it's, it's quite a bit different number than what the EIA says at, at $38. Got it. That's really helpful. Um, so we've been talking mostly about electricity the last uh, 10, 15 minutes, um, but there are other applications, potential applications for geothermal energy. Can you give us kind of a whirlwind tour of what some of those other applications yeah. might be? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a whole spectrum of geothermal from drilling a small hole in your backyard to use it for uh, what they call ground source heat pumps all the way to really deep electricity generation, generating geothermal, and then a category in the middle that's called direct use. And, and, and direct use is also deep wells, also using the heat, but not for power generation purposes. So it's typically not as hot. And basically any application you could think of where heat or cooling might be valuable, somewhere around the world, people have done this for, for geothermal in, in a really exciting way. And I'll just tell you about a recent trip I took to Kenya, which is now one of the world leaders in geothermal. They get a little bit more than 50% of their electricity from geothermal now. It's been a huge growth um, country for the industry over the last decade. And Kenya's really come out as a, as a true leader in terms of development and understanding of geothermal resources. And they have taken very seriously um, the different direct uses you have here. So you can go tour a facility in Kenya, and I was able to do this um, right outside of Nakuru, Kenya, where they have um, greenhouses that are powered by geothermal. They have fish ponds that are powered by geothermal. When I say powered by geothermal, I don't mean electricity. I mean that they use that heat to control the temperature year round. So you have the, the plants at the optimum temperature for efficient growing. And so like in a place like Kenya, Actually, flowers are one of the biggest export products that Kenya provides, and a lot of growers have been able to co-locate their flower production with the geothermal facilities so that they can use that heat to maintain optimum growing conditions at a really low cost and in a carbon-free manner year-round to you know, double the productivity of their plants. So there's all kinds of 
applications like this. Essentially, anytime you can think of um, people or industries needing heat that's kind of in that category, let's call it anywhere from 30C all the way up to 150, 200C, um, geothermal can be excellent at producing that. And that also provides opportunities for other sectors like district heating. So you go to like Iceland and it's kind of fascinating, even in the wintertime at this place up on the Arctic Circle, people will sit in their homes with the windows open in the wintertime <laughs> so they can get a fresh breeze because with geothermal power, it's carbon free and it's so cheap that you can just keep your home whatever temperature you want. And they've even lined the streets so they don't even have to do any shoveling of snow because they heat the streets so that the snow just melts as soon as it lands on it. So nice. uh, there's all kinds of things that you can do in terms of geothermal district heating. Now, that, that's a market that is really has become very common in Scandinavia and China where that's really taking off. The U.S. is a bit of a laggard. We've got a fantastic resource in Boise. If you ever go tour downtown Boise, Idaho, um, a lot of the downtown area is on the same geothermal heating system. But it really hasn't taken hold beyond that. And I think we need some innovation and some technology and some policies to support it to see it really take off. And I think where this is exciting is geothermal heat could be a hugely valuable resource for the Northeast in the US, an area where we're gonna have a really hard time decarbonizing, especially that winter load. So I'll point to projects like recently, Cornell got awarded a grant from the Department of Energy to explore drilling deep geothermal wells to swap their entire campus from a currently you know, boiler fired heating system to be geothermal heated. And so thinking about an entire college campus that could now be produced with carbon free heating source, even in a Cornell winter, which is, you know, kind of famously cold. So there's these opportunities for things outside the electricity generating sector that I think regions in the U.S. Um, like the Northeast that haven't been traditional geothermal hotspots, if you pardon the pun, um, mm -hmm. can really take advantage of. And there's a lot of different value streams that you can think of uh, on top of geothermal outside of just electricity generation. Yeah. That's that's great. Thanks so much for that uh, sort of overview. I know, again, as always, we could talk about this stuff for so much longer, but uh, but that's a really great primer. Yeah, the last one I'll just plug quickly because I, I, I can't forget about it, especially as we think about the electric vehicle supply. Um, geothermal brines, that reservoir fluid, usually has a lot of lithium in it. And there's pilot projects mm -hmm. now in the Salton Sea in California, in Iceland, in France to actually directly extract lithium so you can have commercial grade lithium for electric vehicle battery production right from a geothermal resource. So that's an additional revenue stream that people are building out right now for geothermal resources. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So we've been talking for the last few minutes about the positive attributes of geothermal energy. There clearly are a substantial number of them, uh, but there are also are some risks. I remember when I was writing my book on fracking and I was learning about the connection between wastewater and fracking and earthquakes, I came across studies about risks of seismicity associated with geothermal energy. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that as well as you know help us understand whether there might be other environmental risks uh, to be concerned about. Yeah, I think this it's a good question and there's some, definitely some challenges to be addressed in, in geothermal, both both economically and, and from a resource standpoint, and also uh, environmentally. And so, you know, one of the things about geothermal is it takes a long time to develop. And so, uh, that's something that you know, geothermal is not very really very responsive to. Oh, we need power this year. Um, that's not really something that's mm -hmm. realistic for geothermal. So one of the big things that's kept geothermal from being developed is it truly does require a planning cycle that's longer than um, two to three years to, to get it online. So that's definitely one of the challenges commercially and with the resource in general. Um, 
so that's that's an issue, you know, economically, commercially. That that's that's a barrier to development. Whenever you talk about environmentally, I mean, there's there's a few things that come into this. I mean, first off, just like any other resource, stewardship of the local air pollution and local water, all of those things are something that geothermal developers have to pay a lot of attention to, and and uh, especially um, plants using more conventional, what they call flash turbine cycle uh, electricity for geothermal. A lot of times the reservoir fluid in steam is run through the turbine and then vented directly to the atmosphere. So there's been situations where whatever comes up with that reservoir fluid, whether it's um, CO2 or other um, gases that are you know, not great from a, from a pollution and environmental standpoint, uh, can get released out into the community. And so I think traditional mm-hmm. geothermal using that kind of technology, there's certainly been some local environmental effect, impacts that are not always great that, that that need to be addressed. I think that's one of the things whenever you think about a binary cycle plant, um, it's closed loop at the surface. You don't vent any of the reservoir fluid to the atmosphere. So it's truly a zero emission resource. Um, so that's one thing that is a benefit to that resource compared to traditional geothermal, where there can be some marginal emissions. It really depends on what kind of technology you're using at the surface for that. And then, and then so that's you know, something to be to be thoughtful about with geothermal is flash cycle geothermal. There can be some local pollution impacts and even CO2 associated with it. Uh, and then finally, to get to your point about, you know, the um, induced seismicity issues, um, there's been examples of that associated with geothermal before. I think most famously, uh, there was a, a magnitude 3.6 earthquake in Basel, Switzerland about 15 years ago that was associated with a geothermal project that really kind of alerted people to the fact that these projects can have some seismic events associated with them. And I'll I'll point out that a magnitude 3.6 earthquake, that was not enough to cause any damage in Basel. It was not enough uh, to, but it was enough to certainly, or or put anybody in danger, but it was enough to certainly scare people. And and I think that's valid. I mean, obviously no no one wants to be in a situation where, um, where they, uh, where, where something as scary as an earthquake can be in the cards for development. So that's something that's happened with geothermal projects in the past. Um, what I can say is the regulatory regime in the United States was highly responsive to that event that happened in Switzerland about 15 years ago and has implemented something that's called the induced seismicity mitigation protocol that all geothermal operations uh, have to follow in the U.S. If, if there's a risk of any seismic events on that land. And it's a very rigorous process that's kind of best in class that walks through to ensure safe operations and has been looked at by seismology experts and all the people that you would want to understand that process. And as a result, I think that's one of the many reasons why we've never had an issue with that kind of event in the U.S. And, and I think we're in a really good position to you know, continue to safely develop in the U.S. geothermal because that protocol is much more stringent than anything that the oil and gas industry follows. And I think it's been a key reason why you haven't had any of those issues in the U.S. to date. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, So once again, Tim, thank you so much for talking us through all these complex issues. Again, as always, you know, we could go much deeper into, no pun intended, much deeper into all of these issues and uncover more hot rocks. Um, (laughs) But but let's close it out now with our uh, uh, end of the show question that we call the top of the stack. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you think our listeners would enjoy? And I'll just start off with a really quick recommendation for an article I read in the New York Times a few days ago, um, or maybe it was a a couple weeks ago now. It was called How the World's Largest Garbage Dump Evolved 
evolved into a green oasis. <laughs> so it's about an enormous dump on Staten Island. Uh, it's about the size of Lower Manhattan. Uh, it received its last cargo in 2001, but has basically been left untouched since then. Uh, and it's developed into this really interesting place where there's lots of wildlife activity and they're actually opening uh, a park there in 2021 that'll expand over time. Uh, and it's just a really interesting story about uh, the use of a resource that we don't think of very much, which would be a landfill. Uh, in a way that's actually quite beneficial. Uh, so I'd recommend checking that out. Great pictures, too. Uh, so how about you, Tim? What's on the top of your stack? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a fiction recommendation, if that's allowed in the yeah, rules. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so a, a, a book trilogy that I finished recently that, that was just, you know, was was knockout good was The Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. Um, mm. And it's a fascinating book. It's it's kind of in this in the realm of sci-fi. And I can tell you, Part of the reason, if it's not clear from this conversation, um, you should know me as the geothermal guy, definitely nerd out about geoscience um, topics and issues. And I feel like the realm of sci-fi, yeah. people like to talk about s space and all these different things. And this is a book phenomenally done. N.K. Jemisin is a great author and it's and it's kind of sci-fi, but about geoscience in a, in a way that's really interesting and portrays a, a world of the future that I think has a ton of lessons um, for a lot of the questions we're wrestling with today when it comes to sustainability and power and and what our world actually looks like that's quite fascinating so i think it's just a absolutely fun read but one that's going to make you think a lot about um about what the future looks like and how our relationship with our resources and environment look like um and finally you can nerd out about geoscience which is the which is the most fun thing for somebody like me so i would highly recommend uh anybody pick up that that book trilogy it's it's just phenomenal that sounds fantastic. And I mean, first thing I thought of was Journey to the Center of the Earth, the Jules Verne novel has been made into various terrible movies over the years. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for that recommendation. You got it. So once again, Tim Latimer from Fervo Energy, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.